welcome to another episode of Not Too Deep. I'm your host, Grace Helbig. Very excited to have Luvi Ajayi-Jones on today's episode. She is an author. She's a digital strategist. Uh, she's just an incredible beacon of light and wisdom. You might recognize her newest book, Professional Troublemaker, the Fear Fighter Manual that has recently come out. She talks to us all about um, speaking to the idea of, of fears we all have in personal and professional worlds. And she just gives endless, incredible advice on uh, showing up for yourself in the world and in whatever profession it is that you find your passion in. I'm still um, collecting myself and processing. Please, please enjoy this episode of Not Too Deep with Luvia Ajayi-Jones. <laughs> Lovey, I'm so excited to talk to you today because I feel like you have just such infectious energy and a wealth of knowledge that is so pertinent to what everyone is kind of experiencing in some way or another right now. Um, thank you for being here and making time. I know you've been doing a billion hours of press for your new book, and so I am excited to talk to you all about it. Um, just to give us a little background, can you um, can you give us a little background? You moved to Chicago from Nigeria when you were a younger girl. And when I was nine. When you were nine. And then you studied psychology and marketing? Psychology. Yep. Yep. Okay. So then how do you how do you go from studying psychology to uh, writing the books that you have out now? Yes. So. I actually wanted to be a doctor growing up. Okay. So when I started college, my major was psychology pre-med. Okay. And I took chemistry 101 and ended up getting the first and last D of my academic career. <laughs> yeah, that'll do that, it. <laughs> chemistry will do it. Yeah. Put a stop to that dream real quick. Uh -huh. um, and I dropped the pre-med piece, but I kept psychology because I still love it. Mm. Um, but that same semester, I actually started my blog. Okay. This is 2003. Wow. It was yeah, it was 18 years ago. And um, it was just about my undergrad life. Okay. So I have my whole undergrad uh, career documented Wow, in this now defunct blog it doesn't exist on the internet anymore. But okay. once I deleted, once I graduated, I deleted that blog and started awesomelylovey.com, mm. which is what I still have now. It's the site where I talk about, you know, the world as I see it, mm -hmm. TV, race, shenanigans, randomness, whatever I feel like. Yeah. And it is just from my point of view. Um, and it is a thing that I didn't realize that I was building into my career because mm -hmm. when I started blogging and even when I graduated from college, like blogging wasn't like a thing that was really taken seriously. Right. That's why I'm that way. curious back in 2003, like what, if you remember, like what was the impetus to start blogging? Cause yeah, that wasn't a very like prevalent thing. No. Cause I mean, back then it was just online journals. Right. Right. Yeah. Like Zanga, Live Journal. Mm -hmm. So I'm pretty sure my friends peer pressure was doing it. So it wasn't <laughs> anything that was like, oh my God, we're going to do this thing. It was just like, we want to start on a web blog. And I was like, okay. Sure. So, but I never saw it as like something that was going to begin my career. Mm -hmm. And that was a gift because it allowed me to write without pretense, without strategy, without expectation. Mm. So I wrote as true as possible without any type of idea of like, oh, well, this thing will come from it. So I have to write in this way. Mm -hmm. I wrote authentically in the way, like as if nobody was watching. Yeah. And that practice of speaking the truth out loud kept me going. So 
you know, more and more people started finding my blog mm-hmm. and would say like, oh my God, you're saying what I was thinking, but I dared not to say. Yeah. Um, in 2009, I won my first award for the blog and it was for the best humor blog in the Black Web Blog Awards. Wow. So, yeah. And I was like, oh, snap. Wow, this <laughs> thing's cool. And at that point, I was marketing coordinator at a nonprofit. Okay. Um, April 2010, I got laid off my job. Mm. Um, and that's the last time I worked really for anybody else. Wow. Because what happened is I, I started doing consulting like digital and marketing consulting for small business owners for bloggers mm-hmm. as i looked for other jobs because mm-hmm. i was i was still like okay well we're gonna find another job and we'll make sure we double down on that yeah. but i like back then you know remember indeed and monster yes yeah why is my hat crooked? Okay. <laughs> i was like why is my hat crooked okay so indeed and monster is where like at that point you used to go to drop your resume so yes. i drop my resume in there all the time yeah. and i'd be looking for other jobs in marketing. Mm. Um, but again, being the hustler that I am, I was making money working for other people, like doing this type of like consulting for other people. Interesting. And that, and when you're doing marketing consulting for other people, it must be interesting that you get to see the marketplace from a different perspective than from necessarily marketing yourself all the time. And mm-hmm. so you can kind of see like trends and patterns and like how that internet world works. Yeah. And I think, you know, for my full-time job that it was a nonprofit that helped other nonprofits tell their stories in digital. Mm, Okay. So I was already adept, um, and in the field of using social media to tell authentic stories. Right. So yeah, I deepened that practice when I was working with other people and had all these clients and was doing different websites for them. But ultimately I was my own biggest client. Mm Mm-hmm. I was my own biggest client. So people were just watching me move and be like, can you help me do some of that? And I'm like, sure. <laughs> so, but through it all, I was blogging still because mm-hmm. this thing, I had fallen in love with writing outside the classroom in a big way. Yeah. But I wasn't calling myself a writer because that title felt too big. Mm-hmm. It felt almost like I was wearing a coat that wasn't mine. Yeah. Because I thought about writers as like Toni Morrison. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I thought about writers like Terry McMillan, and I was like, they write novels. And then other writers are journalists, and I was neither one. I wasn't a novelist, nor was I a journalist. I was just, I considered myself just the person who was writing her thoughts. Mm-hmm. But people were deeply connecting to it. Like, I remember one frustrated night, I was like, why can't I find a new job? Like, maybe I need to spend less time on this blog thing and just really focus on looking for a new job that's going to give me a 401k. Sure. And later that night, I got a note from somebody who was like, I just wanted to email you because I was sitting in the waiting room as my mom got chemotherapy and reading your blog was the reason why I wasn't crying. Wow. And it was like the moments when I wanted to quit, there would be somebody who would drop in my inbox Mm. who would say what impact my words were having on them. So I kept on writing, uh, kept on marketing. And then 2012, in the beginning of 2012, I got credentialed to do press coverage at the Academy Awards. Cool. And I was backstage and on red carpet. Most most journalists actually get access to red carpet, but not backstage. Backstage is, here I am, I was there. (laughs) And I remember being like, 
I've spent so much time saying I'm not a writer. Yeah. Because I didn't think a writer did words in the way I did. Yeah. The stereotype. I discounted it. Yeah. That uh, there's a bit of the imposter syndrome that pokes in because the traditional definition doesn't necessarily fit what your current situation is. Correct. And I think I felt convicted in that room because here I am next to journalists and writers from CNN, BBC, like people who are backed by multi-billion dollar outlets. Yeah. And then there's me, Austin Lee Lovey. (laughs) And I have to be like, your words got you in the same room as these people who come with freaking giants behind them. Yeah. You are a writer. Like, why would you not consider yourself a writer? And I think that's the moment when I finally started calling myself a writer. And that's when all the things I was afraid of. So I was like, how do writers who are not journalists make money? Yeah. Brands started reaching out to me and saying like, your audience is huge. They listen to you. We should work together. I got two columns in the magazine. Cool. And it was like the doors just opened up. It was almost like God and the universe were like, we've been waiting for you (laughs) to name and claim who you are so we can give you what we had for you. And I think from then on, I started honoring the gifts more and just being like, I'm not just a blogger. I'm not just somebody who's sitting behind a screen. I am somebody who was brought here to use her words to make people think critically, to make them feel joy and to compel them to take action that will leave this world better than they found it. That mm. is my purpose. And and wow. once I once I kind of honored that and started standing in it, things happened. So my I got my my first book deal in February 2015, March 2015, first book I'm judging you, the Do Better Manual came out September 2016. Yeah. Instantly hit the times list at number five. I mean, uh, yeah, that's incredible. And so going back to when you get that first book deal and, you know, you, you're stepping into your power and you're understanding your purpose and you're like finding like really connecting with like the energy that you have to give the world. How were you nervous taking on the first book? Did you put a lot of expectations for yourself on it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Like for my first book, I knew I wanted this book to be a New York Times bestseller because at that point, there weren't a lot of essay collections by Black women. Right. There were not. And um, even in my proposal, I could barely even, I I don't think I could put a Black woman book in there because there were so few that yeah. were had actually been successful. And anyone that I brought up to my agent, he'd be like, no, you can't put that one. It didn't do that well. So it wow. shouldn't go in your proposal. So I was like, well, you know what? This book needs to serve as the one that people can now put in their proposals. Yeah. This book needs to do the purpose of opening the doors to let people who have stories to tell tell it people who look like me mm-hmm. so I was like I need this book to hit the times list because it will shift things if it does yeah for other writers for other black women writers for other marginalized writers so I absolutely like put it on my back and you know I, I always bring out my intense marketing head whenever I'm dropping something yeah so I mean you have, have yeah you have such a, a toolbox of, I did. Uh, of and stuff I use all helps. of it you know I use the power of community I use the mm-hmm. power of like really good branding, visual branding. Mm-hmm. I use the power of really good storytelling and mission-driven storytelling. And for book one, people rose up to, it was like, we got you. Like this yeah. book is going to be, and the book was everywhere. I didn't expect it to come in at number five. And when I'm judging you hit, I remember calling my 
speaker's agent and he was like, well, we just doubled your book, like your, your, your fees. Amazing. The, you know, that phone call doubled my fees. So, wow. you know, a year after that, I ended up doing this TED talk that's called getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. That went viral, had a million views in a month. Wow. Um, and ever since then, I've just been on this, I've been very clear that my work is that purpose that I've stated, but even beyond that, I need to make sure people, like I'm loaning people courage yeah. to do what feels tough, to be the person who they don't currently have. Like, Cause the reason why it took me so long to call myself a writer is because I didn't have the example of the writer that was like me. Mm-hmm. So I ultimately became that example for myself and hopefully for other people. So when I did the TED talk, my first words were, I'm a professional troublemaker. And in the talk, I, it was all about how we often let fear stop us from doing what we're purposed to do or say. Mm-hmm. So when the talk went nuts um, and I started getting notes every single day, I still get notes yeah. from people who were like, I watched your TED talk and this is what it did for me. And here's, here's the impact it had. I still got a note this morning and it's Amazing. been three, it's been, yeah, it's been three years and three months since this thing came out. Wow. I was like, this is something that we all need to talk about. This is something that my, my whole journey is of moments when I have chosen to do what scared me. Mm-hmm. And I've won because of it. So that's why I wrote Professional Troublemaker, the Fear Fighter Manual. Yeah. I'm like, that is the messaging that I need because that's the book that I needed 10 years ago when I was afraid to call myself a writer. Totally. You know, it's the book that I needed when, shoot, I was probably like, I don't want to be a doctor. That's not, that's not what is for me. So I wrote that book and it came out last month, debuted at number three on the Times list. It's, I mean, yeah, it's incredible. I, uh, I connect so much with your message. I, I grew up doing improv comedy and one of like foundational, um, theories is follow your fear, right? Cause you're, uh, the fear is like a huge emotional indicator of, um, good and bad for you. And so I yes. am so aligned with your message on all of this. Um, I, I'm curious too, uh, when you're writing the professional troublemaker, the fear fighting manual, uh, or fear fighter manual, and you know it's coming out at a time when the world is uh, a very unexpected way. How did this time around of you promoting this book and doing virtual events, did it have a, um, a deeper impact for you? Was it um, more difficult, but still like, it seems like you're still able to get this message that transcends, you know, in-person book uh, events versus virtual book events. So I'm just curious how the launch has been in a pandemic at such a wild time. Yeah, I think writing this during the pandemic was definitely a challenge because I'm writing a book about fighting fear at a time when the world is scary. But I also think it drove me forward because it felt especially urgent. Mm -hmm. It It felt especially necessary. Yeah. And this idea of fear is something that's especially palpable now when we're all afraid of this grand thing that's happening around us, this world that we're in. And I think I, um, I channeled it into yeah. a book and I think it even gave me more perspective about how fear keeps us from physical danger, right? Mm-hmm. That's the purpose is to keep us from putting our hands in fire. It's to keep us from jumping out of a plane without a parachute. It's to keep us from not wearing our mask when we're going outside in the middle of a pandemic. 
Mm-hmm. But that same thing will now stop us from asking for a raise or stop us from having a tough conversation with a friend. And we have to start being intentional about tackling it because we're not going to fight fear by accident. Yeah. It needs to be an intentional decision that we make that says, you know what, even in the moments when I'm petrified, I need to move forward if this thing is really important to me. Mm. Um, and I need to not let fear be the, what's my first factor in decision making. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And, and when the book came out and I've been getting so many notes about this every now it's like the, new, the thing that I'm getting notes about every single day. Right. Well, I'm like, if we do the math and your TED talk three years later is still incredibly yeah. profound for people. This is going to have longevity like beyond yeah. what you can imagine. I got a note. So like, you know, one thing that I want to do with this book, like, again, I want, I wanted this book to loan people courage because yeah. I can loan courage. That's you know, great. sometimes you need something that's going to tell you, you got this. Like, yeah. I know it's tough, but you got this. And already my book has been changing lives. Like mm. my book editor, when she was editing this book, she read my ask for more chapter, which is chapter four. Is that chapter four? Actually, I'm out of, I don't even know, but <laughs> she read, she she read this ask for more chapter and she asked her boss for a raise. Wow. Well, eight months later, she tells me not only did she get the raise, she got a promotion. She's now editorial director of Penguin Life. And her Amazing. assistant got promoted to editor. And she's like, it's because of your book. Your book gave me and I, I, I kept on thinking about your words and it made me do this thing that I might not have done before. And for me, that wow. is the goal of who I am and how I show up in the work that I do. Like, I want people to say, you actually made me do this thing that I wouldn't have done before. And here's yeah. a great thing that happened because of it. Somebody yesterday sent me a note that said um, they applied for a job that they did not feel qualified for. Wow. Three days later, because they, they, they were like basically like live DMing me as the, everything was going on. <laughs> yeah. So on Monday, they DMed me and said, so I applied for this job because I, you've been like in my head. <laughs> I applied for this job that I didn't feel qualified for and I have an interview for it. So she hits me up on Wednesday, two days later, <laughs> and says, not only did I get the job, but now because of the pay that I'm going to be getting, I no longer have to have two jobs for the wow. first time in my adult life. I wow. can actually afford to live based on this one job. And she was like, shout out to you and your book. I posted it on online. Oh, I posted cool. the DM screenshot. But that for me, I'm like, yes, yeah. yes. Yes, because I want us to know that we can live audacious lives. We can ask for things that feel big. We can absolutely be who we say we are. And if hearing me, if reading my book can do this for you, then I'm doing my job. Wow. I mean, it's incredible because, too, you're also just so authentically invested in uh like the people that are engaging with your work and how it affects them, which I'm sure is so cool and also probably pretty tiring (laughs) after a bit of wanting to make sure that you are available emotionally for all these people that have emotional resonance with your book. Um, Okay, we have to take a quick break. When we get back, I have a a billion more questions for you. So we'll be right back with more Not Too Deep. Sounds good. Hi, friends. Grace Helbig here from the podcast Not Too Deep, which you are currently listening to, hosted by me, Grace Helbig. Just wanted to say a couple of things. One, 
thank you so much for listening. And two, if you are enjoying yourself to such a degree that you'd love to leave us a um, review on the Apple Store, that would be so appreciated because again you are very appreciated for giving us your time your ears your attention whatever it may be uh and that was my couple of things now back to me me okay i have a question for you we're back uh you have mentioned on twitter and your instagram that this year has confirmed for you that you are an introvert um and i myself am very much an introvert i also i work from home and this year has also confirmed for me the joy i have around being an introvert i'm curious uh have you ever struggled with introvert seeming like a negative thing for you um no because here's Mm. the thing even though quarantine affirmed my introversion right i didn't know i was and you know and then join my company not having to be constantly around people. I yeah. think one thing co- pandemic also did allow me to be still and understand that I love stillness. Mm. You know, I love not running around like a headless chicken. I've been yeah. busy for years where I was averaging about 110,000 miles for about <sighs> six years wow. of travel yeah. every year. So pandemic happening and sitting me down, I was like, <laughs> I don't have to run for a flight. <gasps> this is great. Amazing. So yeah, my intro, I am absolutely an introvert. I can people, but the moment I'm done peopling, yeah. I'm done. You're done. Let me go face the wall <laughs> and recharge my batteries. Totally. Uh, I also know that you talk about uh, imposter syndrome uh, being the cousin of fear. And I'm curious, um, in the virtual book tours that you've been doing, there's thousands of people there. Do you notice a common struggle that people have? Is it generally just like the not being confident enough to go for something? Is there the imposter syndrome that's around? Or is it a mix of a lot of different things? Yeah, I think the imposter syndrome is common in that a lot of really amazing people will tend to think that they are not, they have not earned their way to whatever opportunity or they can't they're not qualified for something, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think for, for me, I think imposter syndrome looks like, I'll think I'm not ready for something. Mm -hmm. It's not that I'll say I can't do it. It's I'll be like, "Mm, I don't think I'm prepared yet. Or I don't think this is the right time. Because on my TED talk that now has almost 6 million views, I turned it down twice because I didn't think I was ready for it. Really? I did. I did. I was like, uh, I'm not going to be able to do that because TED is super serious about their, their stage. Yeah. But I think one of my friends, unique, loaned me courage and was like, no, you have to do this talk. Mm. So I think about how people tend to think because your career is going a certain way, imposter syndrome dies. No, it just mm. looks different. It shape shifts. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> I think we all just have to start understanding that use the imposter syndrome to drive you forward, not to pull you back. You know, use it to make sure you're practicing your craft. Mm. Use it to make sure you're doing work. If you're doing the work, the imposter syndrome shouldn't, tell you that you're not good enough for it right because there are people who are in rooms who didn't even earn their way into the room but you forget that because they're just so confident right there is something to that whole fake it till you make it thing yeah yeah there absolutely is and i think we need to know when imposter syndrome is speaking to us Mm -hmm. and then use a different voice to say no i got this I could do this. And even if I don't know it right now, I'll figure it out. Like I figured out a bunch of other things. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Especially because that's such a great way to frame it that it's you don't think you're ready yet, which is such an excuse because when it, when will yet become now unless Correct. you just do it? Yeah. It's so interesting. Okay, we're going to um, get into some a little bit lighter questions. I'm going to ask you the two questions I ask every single guest that is on this podcast. And the first is, who, alive or dead, would you most like to throw cold spaghetti at? Donald Trump. Yeah, that's a very popular answer, yes. Like, I would absolutely take up that opportunity anytime. (laughs) And Mitch McConnell, he's a freaking Uh, worst. Hate his guts. Yep, yep, yep. I would would pay all the money to attend the virtual event that allowed me to see you do just that. Yes! (laughs) Look, I I would have an amazing time doing it. Okay, the other question I ask every single guest is to tell us your worst pants shitting story or like a bathroom emergency situation, but you can only use three words or three small phrases to describe the event. So for example, mine is a college jogging front lawn. Oh, God. (laughs) And if you don't have one, that's okay, too. I actually don't have one. That's why I was like, wow, I don't have one. Okay, that's incredible to me. Um, I respect you. I really don't. So deeply. Let me think. Let me think real quick. Let me think in case I'm. Because sometimes these are the events that we tend to repress deep down in our our bones. Um, Let me think. We can also come back to it. I don't think there is one because yeah, but if I if I come up with one, I'll interrupt you and go. I found it. Okay. (laughs) I know they're not as. prevalent in this last year where we've all been in our homes and had the convenience of our own bathroom situations versus like travel or office bathroom situations. Um, Okay. The other section of this podcast we call deep or hot, which means you can either choose to answer a deep question that we have prepared for you or, or you could give us a hot take on something that might be bothering you that you want to get off your chest. Hot. Hot. Do you have a hot take? I usually have a hot take about something. Oh, I have a hot take for you that I I mean, you might be able to morph into a hot take. Oh, Uh, okay. So um, I saw and I totally agree with you on this, that you were saying that uh, Gen Z is not trollable because they grew up in a dumpster fire and they're unfuckwithable. Uh, your quote. And I thought that was so (laughs) smart because uh, I'm 35 years old. And so I'm in the millennial generation and Gen Z is um, scary to me because they are so sure of themselves and uh, they make me feel very insecure about the way I exist in the world. Gen Z, they are warriors. Like, Again, we should be frightened of Gen Z. I also heard that Gen Alpha is who we should really be frightened of because those people, Gen Alpha is the generation below Gen Z. Oh, God. Okay. So like the 10-year-olds, I've heard (laughs) these 10-year-olds are savages. I've heard that they are pure (laughs) savages. They have all of Gen Z's bravado with the lack of fucks to give about anything. Oh, no. I've heard Gen Alpha is frightening. Yes. <laughs> I said, I need another thing to worry about. So I'll add that to my list. But also, yeah, I imagine because 
they've grown up with technology uh, inherent in their, you know, it's entire in their life. They call it yeah. Generation iPad. Like they grew up <laughs> yeah. with the iPad as like <laughs> these two year olds can run an iPad better than us. That's so, incredible. Yeah. So they're frightening. Um, I'm curious about your relationship with social media um, because you, you mean, you started blogging you've gained this very engaged audience uh, through social media. How do you interact with it on a regular basis? Do you create boundaries for yourself? Do you just sort of um, go with your heart's desire on it? I think I create boundaries for myself, but I also, I don't follow everybody who follows me. So like I curate my social spaces because Mm. I'm like, who I let into my social spaces, they absolutely dictate the experience. So I'm unapologetic about being like, nope, not adding that person as a friend. Nope, definitely not following that person because I don't want people to stress me out on social. And and I want to make sure that I can log in and not instantly be like, oh, God, the world is trash. The world is trash. But (laughs) there are some people who will stress you out. There are some people who are not interesting on Mm -hmm. social. Like you might know them in real life. And there are people who I know in real life who I don't follow on social media. Like, yeah. Let's be friends offline. We don't have to be online friends and that's fine. So yeah, mm-hmm. those are part of the boundaries that I draw. That make yeah, I uh I need to take that advice. I haven't done the like sit down and actually curate um but then I still at the end of the day wonder why I get anxiety when I look at my phone. I'm like, well, there's the simple Unfollow, solution. Follow, report as spam, delete, block. I tell people that my social platform is not a democracy it's a dictatorship i run mm-hmm. this di- i run this nation yeah. with, with the iron fist <laughs> and i protect it fiercely without apology so if you bring foolishness to my platform disrespect hate i will delete i will report you as spam i will block yeah. you so you no longer have access to that space yeah that's uh that makes so much sense. <laughs> it's just something I think everyone overlooks now, but now everyone, yeah, we all have the tools to be able to do that. Uh, I'm also curious what you do when you feel burnt out. How do you recharge yourself? I run away. Really? <laughs> yeah. That is one thing I'm doing in a couple of weeks is I am running away. Yeah. Because I want to, yes, yeah, that whole introvert thing. Mm-hmm. I have done so much peopling that now I must go dig my head in the sand to get my batteries back so that yes. I can come back and do more peopling. Yeah, no, and I think that's so, because I feel like a lot of people get worried that if they um, leave for any period of time, people will forget or momentum will be lost or there'll be some uh, disconnect when they try to come back to an internet space or whatever it is that they're uh, working on. But I think it's absolutely necessary to get away and then come back. Go away. Run away. I said, I am running away. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, no one can get mad because you're letting everyone know that's what's about to happen. That's it. I'm just like, listen, I will be, I will be of no use to anybody. I think that's, uh, it's very self-aware and I think helpful for everyone. Okay, we're going to take one last break. And when we get back, the last section of our uh, podcast, we get questions and advice emailed to us that maybe you can uh, help me give some advice or guidance to these people with some some questions. So uh, we'll be right back with more Not Too Deep. Not Too Deep. With Grace Heidbeck. 
here we go. We got some questions emailed to us um, that I think you have a great perspective that might be able to give some guidance to uh, some of our listeners. Uh, the first question is that I uh, I was a creative uh, working as a writer actor and wanted to go into directing. I was living in a big city after graduating from college uh, in 2019 and 2020 stripped away my jobs and opportunities. I'm now living in a small town in the small town I grew up in. There's next to no opportunities going. And while I tried to remain optimistic, it just hit me how much I feel lost. What would your advice be for a silly person like me in this situation? One, don't ascribe silly to yourself because you're confused. Mm. Be more gentle with yourself. That's the first thing. Because say you're silly is to think that you are somehow not in a place where you should be. And I yeah. think it's a big judgment for you to make on yourself, right? So you got to start with being gentler with yourself. That's mm. that's a piece. And I think it's important. And, and, and I think it's okay to be confused about yeah. what to do, what's next, which is why do whatever feels good for the what's next. Because usually yeah. whatever feels good will give you an answer, mm. right? Like whether you go, oh, that's not it. That's an answer that you now have data to use to move forward. I think knowing what you don't want to do is sometimes even more important than knowing what you do yes. want to do. You Huge. just narrow down the field, right? Yeah. And I also think figure out, like start figuring out what it is that people usually give you, say you're too much of. Mm. What is this thing? Like, so like when I was growing up, people used to say that I was too mouthy. I talk too much. Well, now I'm a speaker for a living. Now (laughs) I use my words and get paid good money for it, right? So there's something in what you used to do when you were little or what people used to throw at you Mm -hmm. that clearly made you stand out. Yeah. There are some answers within that too. Oh, that's such a good call. I also think too, because they seem to be stuck on that opportunities only lie in big cities and that they're back home in their small town that I think it's worth not cutting off from the idea that all of your opportunities are gone just because you're back home in your small town. Like you might have an opportunity to do introspection. And like you said, go through and decide what you don't want to pursue if you do move back out of the small town. Or and I think, think, and you know, yeah. and I think because the world is so connected now, mm-hmm. whether or not you are in the small town doesn't mean you, you can't start building the big dreams, you know? Yeah. You have access to the world at this point. You can take courses at any university at this point. They've all made their courses available online. Like and some of them are free. Yep. Um, you can connect with whoever you want to connect with because of social media. So don't consider the box that you're in the limits to what's possible for you. Hmm. I love that. Okay. Here's another question. Um, so long-time listener, uh, in 2020, uh, I know we all have a long 2020 uh, horrible story, but I had a roommate and friend who just did not believe the virus and was quite Trumpy to say the least. The pandemic really ripped us apart, which was bound to happen at some point, given our opposing views. My question is, how do I RSVP no thanks to her wedding this August? I doubt anyone will be wearing masks or vaccinated, and I just don't want to go. Hmm. Did they How send? Well, a couple of things. It does not sound like this is a relationship that is aligned with your values. Right. 
which means this is a relationship that you should let go of. Mm-hmm. Because if the person is so different, like here's the thing about political, the political is absolutely personal. So whenever yeah. people are like, oh, that's just somebody's political ideas, but your pro- political ideas might actually put me in jeopardy. Mm-hmm. Your political mm-hmm. ideas can absolutely have can affect how I get to show up in the world. And there's policy that's attached to that political ideology that could put me and people who look like me or whatever it is, anybody who's on the margins in jeopardy. So one, don't feel bad by thinking that, oh my God, we are on opposing viewpoints of politics. So I don't see them eye to eye anymore. You're actually, the political is absolutely personal. Anybody who thinks they're separate is being hypocritical. So that's one, two. It just seems like you and your roommate are at the end of the road. Mm. This person does not sound like somebody who you even want to be in community with. And you don't even feel safe around them. Right. Yeah. Which means let them go without guilt, which means this wedding, Mm. the fact that you don't want to go is already good enough reason to not go. Yeah. And then you already know you're going to show up and nobody's going to be wearing a mask. So you're going to be in jeopardy yourself. You do not owe your attendance. So all you need to do is RSVP no. Yeah. Just, it doesn't have to be a tough conversation. If it's, if they're asking whether you're coming and they give you an option to put yes or no, just mark it no and keep it moving. Yeah. And then if she comes back to you, ask you like, do not come to a wedding. You can actually now be truthful. And I want people to understand that the truth even when it hurts people's feelings, it's still okay. At least be, th- be thoughtful and say, hey, thank you for inviting me to your wedding, but I'm not going to be able to come. I'm not going to be comfortable there. I know you don't mm-hmm. believe in coronavirus and I want to make sure I am not putting myself in physical danger. So I'm wishing you all, yeah. but I will not be able to come. Uh, That's fair. That's so good. That's so good. I know I'm learning um, as an adult that I respect people that have uh, the ability to put up boundaries like that as a a part of their character so much more than I like ever noticed before that like you're saying kind of with the social media thing too that it's like if this is not serving you or bettering you in any way it is within your right to make sure it doesn't affect you yeah and I think people just think about it like this you were not born to self-sacrifice constantly Like, I think we're constantly sacrificing and betraying ourselves to make other people feel better. And then other people still don't feel better. And then, so we just did that for what? Yeah. So we got to be less willing to sacrifice ourselves. And if, if this person attends that wedding, that's a self-betrayal because mm. you will be so uncomfortable. Yeah. And then afterwards, you're worried that you might now have COVID. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> what, to make this one person who you don't even feel close or connected to anymore feel better like yeah. oh so you don't hurt their feelings but what about your feelings yeah your feelings are just as valid your safety is even more valid than the feelings so do what you gotta do and 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 she'll be okay and then if you never speak to this person again what have you really lost if you already felt like you weren't safe with them yeah wow this is yeah, you got great advice all the time. <laughs> it's really good. Um, Lovey, we've reached the end of the podcast, but before we wrap up completely, 
uh, we like to give our guests for making time for us a little personalized horoscope from us to you. Um, if you want to read it out loud, Melissa, I think just put it in the chat for you. Yes. Okay. Dear Capricorn, sea goat of the stars, this weekend is a time to slow down your pace and meditate away from all the outside noise. So hopefully those close to you will understand when you give the signature side eye with a blunt, shut the fuck up. Rest easy now. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Um, I, I think that's relevant to what is in store for you in the future. Um, Lovey, where can people see your TED Talk? Can they get the book now or anything else that you might be up to in the future? Yes. So people can, you know, watch my TED Talk. Um, it is on ted.com but most importantly you can buy my book you can yes. go to amazon barnes and nobles target independent bookstores um and get professional troublemaker the fear fighter manual i read the audio so nice it's already won an earphone awards with the ah. audio file magazine so if you want to hear my voice saying the stuff to you cool you can mm -hmm. and then for me you can follow me on social i am at lovey l-u-v-v-i-e on all platforms one word Okay. And yeah, join, join me on this mission to fight fear as a intentional decision every single day. And I'm hoping when you read this book, you have tools and you find the exact words and tools to do something tough. The next time you are asked to do something tough. Oh, this has been so wonderful. Please, please go buy this book, get the audio book, just follow everything she's doing because it is infectious and wonderful. And I can't thank you enough again for making time in your whirlwind promo tour of all of this um thank you lovey and we'll see you, you guys thank you for having me grace like I, I always appreciate when people want to share space with me so oh. much appreciated and thank you for your work and i'm excited for you to fight some more fear too oh i cannot wait i cannot wait uh we'll see you guys next time on another episode of not too deep goodbye too deep too deep too deep not too deep with grace helbig not Too Deep is a production of Grace Helbig Incorporated, producer Melissa D. Montz, edited by Shireen Lani Yunus, post-production sound by Chris Henry, and an extra special thanks to Flula for the theme music. <laughs> <laughs>